Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for July 2012. I am writer-critic-rebooted with new cast and new continuity, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there, I'm uh, writer-director-wonderfully-bombastic uh, 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 final part of a trilogy, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us today is our very special guest... I'm John Richards. I'm writer hyphen podcaster hyphen un, underprepared for this podcast. <laughs> that, that's that's. I was trying, but no, it's it's gone wrong. Films, you say. You talk films. about films, <laughs> yeah, right. Film podcasts. You yeah. know, yes. I do television. That's the thing. Right, television is no. the thing I discuss and talk about. So yeah, you both create and critique television. I do. I do. That's not helping the career. Yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> I basically slag off all the people who might employ me again. Well, it's a big month for comic book geeks, people who like their superheroes. Everyone's very, very excited about Not Suitable for Children. The, uh... Well, it's Griff the Invisible. <laughs> Everybody who's waiting for the Griff the, the Invisible, Invisible sequel. Yeah. <laughs> and what a sequel it is. <laughs> I, I would actually, I'm actually quite comfortable kicking off with an Australian film because I'm feeling a bit patriotic. This is... I, I, I love this film. It's a drama about... or A, dra- a, co- a comedy, drama? A comedy. Really? A comedy yeah. drama. There's some pathos in it. A dramedy or a comedy? A dramedy. A comedy. A comedy or a dramedy, depending on you know, which goes first. I'm going to eat a biscuit as well, everyone. I just want to apologise to your listeners. On air. Please yeah. go. Yeah. Um, no, this is, uh, this is a, a, a film I was not expecting to like at all, but really, really won me over. And it's because it's... Like, without wanting to rag on every other Australian film, it's, it's unusually tight, and it's mm. pacey, and it just keeps going, and all the performances are great, and I, 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 like, came out of the... I mean, everyone's fantastic, but I came out of the film wanting to buy shares in Sarah Snook. Mm. Like, if I can buy shares... Sarah share... Stone, Emma Snook. Emma Snook, what? Emma Snook, Sarah Stone. Yeah, but it's... Uh, but, yeah, and every time it, the film looks like it's going to go into areas of predictability, every time you think, oh, I know where this is going, it will take a sharp left turn and go somewhere... Else and the ending avoids all the cliches you wanted. I just really, really love this film. Nice. I didn't love it as much as you did, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was really cute. Um, fight, 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 fight. <laughs> oh, sorry. Let's <laughs> David and Margaret there. Amp it up a little. Uh, yeah, we've. Uh, <laughs> there's been far bigger tussles. Um, <laughs> love and like is kind of okay here. Uh, I yeah. I look. I, I enjoyed it. I like you. I absolutely agree. It's pacey. It's tight. Most of the jokes work, which is bizarre yeah. for an Australian comedy. Um, and the leads are all really likable. Like mm. I've always liked Ryan Quentin, um from sort of the true, like modern Ryan Quentin, yeah. like True Blood and um, Red Hill Red and Hill. Um, yeah. Griff. And, yeah, and he's great in this and Sarah Snook's wonderful. I really liked um, Ryan Gore as well as their right. housemate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was great. I Everyone wish he had more to so do. Spot on. Yeah. And, you know, there's some wonderful vignettes here. And, and like we're saying, it's very funny. I don't think it has a great deal of insight into its issues. I, I like, I think it's funny. It's like he's diagnosed with cancer and that's kind of the, seems to be the least important thing plot wise yeah. <laughs> in terms of everything that happens in the movie. Like the movie's all about sort of, you know, I really want a kid, which is fine. You know, I'm not saying that that's a mm. invalid part of the human experience, but you know, it's just I, I just don't think it's all that insightful about stuff. So in the end, it kind of feels like a sitcom, but a very good sitcom. Can I ask? Because this sounds much more comedy based than I had thought from. Because I've, I've chosen not to see any of the films we're discussing this month. Interesting I, tactic. And that's yeah. my my interesting approach. Yeah. To, I think I think in many ways I represent the audience <laughs> who's sitting at home and doesn't care. So um. <laughs> You're making it so much more like a comedy, though, than certainly the trailers. Well, I or felt the... it was. Okay. Yeah, 
Yeah, like, um, I mean, maybe the trailer just didn't look very funny. I don't know. But uh, seeing the film, it felt very much like a rom-com rather mm-hmm. than a drama. It's very, yeah. you know, I mean, the, mo- the characters have moments of clarity and they get, you know, serious and things they want. And it's funny, you were saying, that brings me to something else. When you were saying that um, you never know where it's going to expect and it keeps taking turns and yeah. twists and... I think that was one of my problems with the film. The characters seemed to kind of spin on a dime and their motivations seemed kind of very conveniently jerked to in the directions in which the plot wanted them to go and didn't have a lot of believability. Um, I, I wouldn't and, deny that, but I like the way they did it so well that didn't bother me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, although somebody said to me, well, they're in their 20s. Weren't you like that when you're in your 20s? I'm like, no, I just wanted a kid less and less. <laughs> To the point now. That's the other thing too. I think with this, I think part of me was bulletproof to this film because yeah. I'm, you know, I'm a devout non-breeder, so I'm kind of like, nah, sorry, you're, you're not winning me over. Unplucky. Nah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a, I have a distinct absence of cluck, mm. and so you know, watching you know this film that's sort of made, kind of trying to make me think that I want to, I want a kid, and it's like, nah, sorry, it's not working at all. But yeah, look, mm. it's cute. It's a nice date night movie. Everybody's really great in it. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it. I think there's going to be a trivia question sometime in the future, which is going to be, what were the three major comic book movies released in 2012? And it's going to be, you know, The Avengers, The Dark Knight Rises, and then everyone will get stumped. Because in between them, wedged in between them, was the reboot of Spider-Man, The Amazing Mm Spider-Man, in which they did... It feels like a, a, a test case. It feels like they're seeing how quickly... Can we reboot an established film series? Because ten years seems ludicrous to well, me. Well, I mean, we all know why it, why it is. It's so Sony can retain the rights no, and but, they but, don't but leave, why, but lose why, it to Marvel. Why do you need to? Because the thing I was saying before, I hate origin stories anyway. I think origin stories, and I'm yeah, huge. Grew up in comic books and, and working, I've worked in a comic book store. And the thing is. I think an origin story can be either covered in about five minutes before your credits or it can be a flashback in the middle of your film. I don't see any need for it to take up mm. any longer than that. Mm. And I always think it's the most boring part of any of a, of a superhero film. And so the idea that ten years after you've, you've done Spider-Man, why do you feel the need? Why, why not just make another Spider-Man film with a different guy playing Spider-Man? Mm. I, yeah, I'm not sure what their reasons were. Right. I think maybe they just wanted to establish a new continuity and rebooting the origin is the best way to do it. And I think, too, because they want to sub, they, they, I guess they're making it more like the comics continuity and probably more like the Ultimate Spider-Man series mm. that Bendis, Brian Michael but Bendis wrote. comics just do it, though. Comics just kind of tend to... Yeah, but they can afford to sort of go on and, and on. And I think and on. Yeah, fan, yes. comic book fans are more used to that, too. Like, right. I think this yeah. whole continuity retcon thing, I think it's a lot more of a new concept in movies. It's only really since geeks have taken over in the last 20 years. Like James yeah. Bond. I mean, I guess James Bond, they change him over, but they wouldn't, there'd be nothing tying those films from one to the other. Well, so No, no, they wouldn't. I, look, it's that, it's that sort of thing. I think comic book fans are more open and used to that sort of thing because they've been copying it for 40 years. Yeah. Whereas films, I think they kind of maybe have to be led by the hand a little bit. Right. And it works so well with Batman, so why not do it again? Yeah. The bad news is it's a virtual beat-for-beat beat remake of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, um, even down to the, you know, the scientist inject, ends, ends up injected with his own serum and turns into the thing that wants to destroy Peter Parker and, and all of that. Um, I mean, there, there are some differences, of course, but it's mainly cosmetic. But the good news is I think it does everything, almost everything better. Um, I think 
Garfield and Stone are much better in the roles than Maguire and Dunst. I think they have an amazing natural chemistry that just jumps off the screen. I mean, Ethan's and and uh, Defoe are probably about even, I guess. Mm. But I think, but I think the lizard's possibly characterised a little bit better. You know, I didn't mind CGI lizard. I thought that was fine. I thought it was better than Green Goblin in a weird suit where you don't see his face or anything. But I thought all of the the stuff, the the character. The character developments and all the stuff in between the fight scenes was what really interested me with this film. And I don't think it's any accident that it's a, a rom-com director who's behind this, mm. being Mark Webb. Is there's so much more of an accent on the relationships in here and they make it work beautifully. And there's just times where you're expecting somebody to come out with a cornball line and they don't. It's said with an expression or a stutter or a, you know, a misdirection or whatever. And it's really beautifully done. I dug, you know, I dug Dennis Leary as, uh, as Captain Stacy and, and just, yeah, just, I was really surprised. I went in expecting very little and came out thinking, wow, that was, that was actually, if, if the reboot has to happen, that's the way to do it. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's it's a really tough comparison. It's impossible not to compare them to the Raimi films. It's just impossible. Yeah, particularly especially, when it's following the same flight path. Well, yeah, especially as every choice in this film feels like a reaction against the Raimi film. I don't agree that it's a beat-for-beat beat remake. I think it's it's going out of its way to do things a little differently. So there's no Daily Bugle because it was in the last yeah. one. There's a focus on Gwen Stacy instead of Mary Jane because of the last well, series. Well, they're taking it there's... younger because, again, that's dictated by the Bendis Ultimate Spider-Man that well, now we're going back to the high school stuff and that's where... Yeah, but they were able to wedge Mary Jane in, in, into high school. I, th- I think yeah. the actual choice of the character is a reaction against all the things that people noticed in the first film and in the first series all because, you know, Mir- uh, Gwen Stacy was in the Raimi films. Yeah, but um, but she was introduced kind of awkwardly as a side character, and yeah, wasn't really... basically they're just mining the cast of the Help in order to find <laughs> uh, Gwen Stacy's. But um, I don't know. Look, as a collection of scenes, I think it's extraordinary. I think Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone are just—you could watch them do anything. They're mm. that good. I think there are some ideas in here which are really, really good. I think the finale. So many comic book movies don't have any big ideas in the finale, and I think this stuff, particularly with the cranes, the idea behind yeah. the cranes. I think that's a great idea. Well, that's a re-expression of from Spider-Man Two of the train scene where they're all carrying Spider-Man. Yeah, you know, it's like New York band no, not, to yeah, help Spidey. That not just the emotion behind it, but the idea of how do you get this guy to where he needs to be. Yeah, it is a really good idea. As a whole, I don't think the film works beyond the sum of its parts. I think overall it's, it just doesn't quite hit. Still so much better than Spider-Man Three though. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Although not as good as Spider-Man Two. <laughs> no, no. It's kind of I. I would rank it as my second favorite Spider-Man film. Okay, so there you go. There's one for the statisticians. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. There are people out there. Let's what, continue. What's interesting with comic book movies is they tend to go on. They tend to be open-ended. Uh, the cast may change, the filmmakers may change, but they only stop when they run out of steam or money or money. Um, or audience, really. Yeah. Or yeah. All of the above. The incredible thing about the Dark Knight trilogy we're now realising is that it was obviously constructed as a trilogy. It wasn't just when Nolan said, I'm going to make three films, it wasn't just three films, I feel like I've got that number in me. It's like he set out to do three films that had an ending. I'm wondering if, if without getting too broad about it, if that's the way we're going to go, because Dark Knight does it so well. I haven't been, look, I, I've been a big fan of, of Batman Begins and the Dark Knight, but 
not to the fervor that some people have. You know, there, there are huge, huge fans of these films out there, and I kind of feel like reacting against them. I've been a bit down on the films because mm. to me, The Dark Knight is a four-star film, and against most of the Dark Knight fanboys, that makes me a hater. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. it's not Casablanca. I think. Yeah. It's, you know, right. I, I think this is the thing that the people who seem to be rude behind. It's like, no, it's better than every film ever. Yeah, no, clearly, it's not better than every film. <laughs> yes, yeah. like I heard. Get Dark Knight often being compared to The Godfather, and I it's like, oh, I'm pers- sorry, what? Personally, yeah, I don't think it's as good as X Men Two. I think <laughs> X Men Two is a better film than Dark Knight. So you know, and I'll be shot now leaving this building. Exactly. Yeah, you're not getting out of it. Already yeah, appearing exactly. in your head yeah. as we speak. But the thing is, The Dark Knight Rises. It's again, it's a flawed film, but what it does is it ties together all the themes of the trilogy so well that I now retrospectively like the first two films more. Now I've seen what the complete story is. This is funny because I watched all three back-to-back in IMAX because right. I'm crazy like that. Yeah. Um, and I'm a lifelong Batman fan, so I kind of had to do it. And I, I have to say they should do it monthly because it's the only way to see them. But anyway. <laughs> but it's interesting that you say because I think... I've been hearing a lot of complaints about it having a slow first act or a slow first two thirds and then it amps up in the finale. For me, I my thoughts on it are more like you, Lee, and I think the way I saw it really contributed to it, which is it feels like the final act of a big story. Mm. The The entire trilogy's got some interesting themes. And going back, and, and that's the thing, when you watch Batman Begins and Dark Knight, you do begin to see themes that are called back to mm. within those those films. And it's very clear now that... Batman Begins is about the culture of fear post 9-11. Dark Knight's about the war on terror post 9-11. And now this is kind of about the post-global financial crisis, you know, exactly. Occupy movement sort of, you know, post 9-11. And where do we, you know, how do, how do we rebuild after all of mm. this? And being open to ideologues who might take you in directions you want to go or might not take you in directions where you want to go. I think it's really interesting that he's doing this within a superhero context. I love that that it is really, you know, as you say, it's about 9-11, it's about War on Terror, it's about the GFC, and it seems to be an incredibly conservative message that he snuck in. Like, it feels subversive in its conservatism. Um, that, that is, those are the themes of the trilogy. But it's, but it's funny, I don't necessarily think it's easily categorised as conservative. I don't think he's endorsing it. I think he's, he's painting Batman as a conservative, almost fascist hero. Yeah, Batman is fucked up. I mean, if, if you yeah. stop to think about it, I mean, he has to be. That's yeah. the... Well, he's rich. He's, you know, he's... Well, he uses yeah, his dead parents, he dresses up as a bat. Yeah. He goes around yeah. beating up people. Like that. Yeah, if you try to put any... And this is the thing, too. Yeah, we were talking about... Well, comic book films are trying to be more and more kind of centred in a real human experience. But the problem is once you do that to a certain degree, it becomes ludicrous because these are people who dress up in... Or it becomes Watchmen. Yeah, yeah, you we've, know. we've got this horrifying kind of story of these damaged people that beat each other to a pulp. I mean, the themes of the trilogy have been... Uh, it's now clear that it's, it's all about symbols mm-hmm. and it's all about Bruce Wayne's personal journey and where Batman comes into it is when those Bruce Wayne's journey intersects with symbols and there's a lot of stuff in, in, in Dark Knight Rises that plays into that. Uh, how Bane uses symbols to manipulate... Uh, the people of Gotham. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, his relationship with his badge, which is the symbol of law enforcement. I think that's one of the most interesting relationships in the film is between him and this piece of metal. Like, I, th- I think that's fascinating and it ties into what the trilogy really is about, which is the, the power of symbols. And he says it right back at the beginning of Batman Begins mm. is people need a symbol. Mm. 
and become more than just a man become an ideal yeah and yeah. he's right i don't think nolan's endorsing that idea i think he's saying for what batman wants to do that's correct and i think too a lot of people have been having these knee-jerk reactions going oh it's a, it's a conservative's night you know vision of what occupy is and mm. you know bane being this force but i don't agree i think i think bane i think the real face of the 99 percent of this film is catwoman she's the one who kind of you know steals to to get ahead and but you know she's basically a good person at heart but there's all this sort of conflict going on Mm. in just trying to survive and whereas bane is much like a he's a tyrant he's you know he's He's like hitler coming in and taking advantage of the fact that germany that people are disenfranchised and and saying this is who you blame your problems on yeah and this is you're going to take back your country and using that rhetoric to in Mm. order to galvanize them and get them in in you know behind him and and i think that's perfectly valid characterization that's yeah. there are people like there like that out there there are mm. you know dictators and warlords all over the world so why that's a conservative viewpoint is beyond me uh, my favorite character i mean everyone's great i mean michael kane says something 20 minutes in the film that made me tear up and it's like you're gonna make me cry in a batman movie <laughs> how the hell did this happen yeah um because you're a wuss <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk oh. about this outside. <laughs> so I thought you'd cry then. I was like, oh, cool. I was only joking. <laughs> Swear to me. Uh, <laughs> but my favourite character arc in the whole movie has to be Joseph Gordon-Levitt's. Yeah. And his performance is great as well. I mean, I'm always... Um, I'm always a huge fan of his, but you wouldn't really, he really socks it out of the park. Here. Yeah, cop character who's just been brought in from nowhere to be the emotional heart of the film. You expect him to be... Someone who's distracting from the rest yeah. of the film, but no, you want to spend more time with him. He's, he's one of those actors, though, is he? Just have anything, you go, Oh, that's good. You yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah. He's, 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 people walk to the screen, you're pleased. Yeah, <laughs> yes. assurance, you're in good hands. He is, you know? yeah, even if I don't enjoy anything else, I'll enjoy this bit. <laughs> and of course, it's epic mm. in that way that Nolan just gets. Yeah, you know, I almost feel like Nolan. Uh, at his best, Nolan is kind of the best parts of a petri dish that's part Cameron, part Fincher, part Bay. You know, and I think there's, there's times when he just kind that of sounds nails awful. all that. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> we, got to, we got turned around on Bay last month, so <laughs> but that's now a positive. Been, it's just yeah. Been, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I, I like, and I think that um, yeah, he just he just he nails the um, the spectacle of the thing as well, and boy, does it deliver in that last in that last stanza. It does. It's one of the best end. It's certainly the best ending to a Batman film. Uh, I think it, you know not just his, but he really, really sticks that ending. And with the exception of one edit in the last five minutes, which I won't talk about because it's extremely spoilery. But there's one shot I would take out to make anyway. But you're happy with everything that happened. I'm happy with everything that happened. Yeah, same you know, here. Overall, it's 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 incredible, and he yeah. really, really finishes well. Nice. All right, now we're kicking off a bit of a new uh, new concept, a new segment here. Um, we usually talk about an issue uh, to do with the film world, but we're um, we're trying out um, a, a series of uh, semi regular segments that we we have so far called mini Hellas for hyphenates. Um, I'm sure we'll come up with something better in the future, hopefully. Uh, and where we we look at a uh, we we do a, a hyphenate style director study of somebody that's made four films or less, somebody who wouldn't normally be picked for the main section. And someone whose career, you know, we can handily cover in, you know, 10, 15 minutes. We've decided to begin with the uh, the two-film oeuvre of Australian filmmaker Sarah Watt. 
Now, of course, she may look both ways in my year without sex, but she was also responsible for many other things, as uh, Lee will begin to describe. She was a prolific director of animated shorts. Um, I believe she made about 17 all up. And they're all very, very autobiographical. There was something very Australian about the way she animated. It was a very tactile manner to her, to her animation. And some of her no most notable shorts, like uh, Living With Happiness uh, in, I think, 2001 and Small Treasures in 1995, they were real precursors to look both ways. I think particularly Living With Happiness uh, with its... Uh, character who would imagine horrible deaths happening at any moment. She seemed quite preoccupied with mortality and with, you know, earthquakes swallowing her up and trains falling off of, of things and mm. car accidents happening. And, and the, the manner in which she manifested this in her animation was fascinating. But it seemed to be a real theme. Uh, and in, in Small Treasures in 95, a, a woman who's pregnant really imagines... The worst. That, that was her first major animation. Well, that was the one that won her, her first sort of swagger prizes. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, international acclaim and so forth. And yeah, and she, and she definitely had that theme of uh, mortality running through. And, and fear as well. Yeah, mm. yeah. And worst case scenario sort of stuff. So her first feature in 2005 was Look Both Ways. The two main characters are a man who discovers he has cancer and a woman who keeps imagining all the ways in which she could die. Mm. All the, all the, all the ways in which the world can wrong, uh, attack her or wrong her. Or, exactly, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And what's really fascinating to me about that, sort of in, in terms of her oeuvre, is uh, a lot has been said, because she passed away last year, a lot has been said of the fact that she had cancer, she beat it and then came back. Mm. Um from what I've been reading, the first cancer scare happened when she was in production on Look Both Ways. Well, I've actually heard post-production. I've it heard production right and post-production. But, yeah. but the fact is that she wrote this mm. without having that, nope. I guess, ultra-personal experience with yes. it. So it's interesting seeing, and I, I think that's going to be important, certainly when we talk about her next film. She certainly had that preoccupation with it, but she's writing about it from almost a a distanced place. She seems like she relates more to um, the, the the woman, the, the lead woman in yep. it. To uh, Justin Clark's character. Justin Clark's character. Yep. Uh, it certainly feels like a, a, as a writer she relates more and, to her. And we should mention at this point that the man who's diagnosed with cancer is played wonderfully by her real-life husband, uh, William McInnes. Yeah, one of my favourite performances of his. Mm. Like, I really like his stuff, but, you know, he's really great in that. Look, I'm a big fan of this film. Like, there, there are parts that don't work. You know, it, it's clunky at times, but I really like the the way the themes all tie together in the ending. And I love the ambiguity of the ending. And, and it's just perfectly judged in terms of not wanting to have a depressing ending, not wanting to go in an, a sappily happy ending, but kind of having your cake and eating it too. I think it's a really well-judged ending. Mm. I think not all, yeah, not all the film worked for me, but there were moments, mainly around McInnes' moments. Like, I, I felt his performance was so kind of... It just felt so truthful and, and soulful that it kind of galvanised the rest of the film. Mm. Um, it, it took me a while to get into it as well in terms of particularly Justine Clark's character. There's not a lot that drives her, you know, like she's not a very active character. She's a pretty passive character, kind of complains about a lot of the stuff that, she, that you know, her, complains about her lot in life and keeps imagining horrible things happening to her in these sort of kind of cute 
little animations and I found it a difficult character to get behind. And then so whenever McInnes was on the screen, I was sort of, I could sort of relate a lot more to, to his um, to his character. Um, but in the end, yeah, it does tie together quite nicely and there's some, there's some nice little moments that happen towards the end. And, but then that came her um, second film, Four Years Later, mm. uh, My Year Without Sex. Yeah. Which was her first project to not involve animation at all. Yeah, it's it's it kind of feels like she's out of her comfort zone a bit, mm. uh, which is certainly good. You know, as an artist, you want to get yourself out of your comfort zone. But it, it's it's very interesting contrasting it to look both ways because they're both kind of films about or that feature cancer. I don't think they're both about cancer. Well, but... that's the thing. It's they're actually part of apparently they're part of a proposed trilogy on right. how serious illness affects people. Okay. Mm. So this... Well, this one's written in a very, from in a very different place from the yep. first one because she's now living with it. Yeah, but weirdly, writing. it was when she came up with the idea. It was based on a friend's experience, right? But yet, obviously, her own experience over those four years in between informed it in a big bad way. Yeah, that's the thing. I think the thing is she's very connected to making small stories about small, you know, normal, average lives. Mm. Um, like her other works include. Towards the end of her life, she she took a series of photos. Around, like and these were over a period of I think over a decade. But she took a series of photos around Footscray and Williamstown and Altona and the western suburbs, kind of cataloguing these very ordinary everyday kind of scenarios. And I think I think that was very much her turf in terms of mm-hmm. not wanting to sensationalise anything, not wanting to kind of this is this is kind of life as we live it. Um, yeah. Her and William lived in the in the western suburbs in Footscray for you know, sort of the last, I think, 20 years of their their lives or something. Um, so there was that very kind of, there's that sort of thing about wanting to tell average stories. My Year Without Sex lacks that, I guess, the beauty that would come with, like I, I'm imagining this story told in an Iranian film or on a, a European yeah, film, yeah. and there's always a beauty in a kind of a... Uh, well, it's funny because the thing I, grace I, to I noticed about My Year Without Sex is it sort of occurred to me that it's very similar to, uh, is it You, Me and Everyone We Know, or Me, You and Everyone mm. We Know? Mm. The, the Miranda July The Miranda film. July movie, which I loved, but kind of dialed down. It's like, she actually does a lot of the same things Miranda July does in that movie, where she leads you to think a certain narrative uh, a thing is going to happen that we, we know of. Like, so there's a, a lotto ticket that gets, lottery ticket that gets left outside, mm. and, you know, is... is we know that there's this one that they haven't scratched this, this scratchy card. Or, you know, maybe this is going to change their lives. And later on, um, it, it, the character I'm forgetting what's the names now. Matt's Matt Day's character. Matt yep. Day's character finds it and scratches it, and it's nothing. He just throws it away. Yeah. And that's actually my favorite moment in that film because yeah. it's and, and the thing where we're led to think something's going to happen and it doesn't. Like, look both ways. Every time there's a, a fantasy sequence about how people might die, that's always a more interesting film than one we're watching. Yeah. You know, like, and every yeah, time it happens, like, can we watch point. that film instead? Can we watch but the one does, where the train comes off the rails? And yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but it does augment the main story. So suddenly that becomes more interesting because you know what she's thinking the possibilities might be. But again, and again, the problem I had with, with weirdly both characters, but in particular, and I actually thought Money Without Sex was, a, was better of the okay. two films. Uh, of, um, but I thought it was interesting in that that she clearly thinks we're going to be on, on the Sasha Holler character's wavelength from the beginning and doesn't really make any effort to make us like her mm. before this incident happens. Matt uh, Day's character, on the other hand, is established as being a great dad. He's good at his job. He, there's a bit where like, they're having some argument and she's going, well, you try looking after the kids then if you can do it. And he's proved to be able to do it better than she can. And they're going, 
I don't get what I'm meant to be feeling about this character because I just don't like her. And I didn't like her from the beginning of the film and I didn't like her at the end. And I, that thing of, it was weird. I thought that she so assumed I was going to be behind her yeah. from the beginning that she kind of forgot to, to check. I, I sort of, I, I jumped to the conclusion a bit, perhaps unfairly, that the film, for me, doesn't work as well as Look Both Ways because it's too personal at this point. I don't know. I, I've certainly seen that in some filmmakers when something's too personal to them, that tends to overwhelm the narrative responsibilities hmm. and I, I guess it's different for you because you they're prefer not really meeting the audience halfway yeah, yeah well a little bit I preferred my year I think because I thought the structure was actually more interesting for a start I think the year yeah and I liked the fact that sh- that that I thought it was better filmed I, I think it's it's quite beautifully shot mm-hmm. I think the cinematography um the the Russell Street cinemas which are hideous in real life and look <laughs> yes. gorgeous in yes. this movie <laughs> Uh, wait, that I, deserves an award. I know, yeah. I know. That's what I meant. That was impressive enough in itself. Yeah. Talk about go. polishing a turd. Yeah, wow. I've been there. That's hideous. <laughs> Making great. You look good. Um, uh, but I kept, and I think also because there were glimpses of more interesting stuff for me anyway. Mm. There was more. There was more text genuinely to it. So more Davies character, who's a female priest who was a one-hit wonder with a sexy, you know, yeah, pop single, that was kind which of should be really interesting. But it's kind of it doesn't yeah. go anywhere. Nothing's done with it. But no. all that stuff's lying in there. Which at least for me... of interesting characters. It's almost like yeah. she's suggesting, look, there are all these really interesting stories within the everyday and then doesn't explore But it doesn't them. quite... And that's what I mean about Miranda... It's kind of explores and this Miranda over. July, this is why I think there's weird things. So the films are very similar. Miranda mm. July takes that and goes, you know, but we can put this slight magical kind of twinkle on it. You kind of go, oh, okay, I get all that. Yeah. Now. Mm. And it was like, this and is it all... brings that, that beauty to it. And yeah. it brings that yeah, magicality. Yeah, yeah. yeah that particularly while she was making her short films as well, and even in between her features, because um, what was a graduate of the VCA and returned many times in the future to and to mentor, teach and mentor a lot of young filmmakers that came mm. out of the VCA during the 1990s and, uh, and mainly as a script editor, I think, in the 2000s. But, um, yeah, she, she was actually awarded, I think, an OBE or something for her services to the Australian film industry back in 2001. Right. Before she was ever a feature filmmaker. Wow. Because of her... T- I mean, she obviously won prizes for her shorts, but it was more for, her, I think, for her guidance and mm. mentorship and teaching. And, um, yeah, by all accounts, she was a wonderful person. I, I got to meet her a few times. And... Now, we interviewed her Bazura, didn't... Oh, well, you interviewed her. I was on, I was on the crew, but... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah she was... Yeah, we interviewed um... She was lovely, and I think she was a bit nervous because she didn't know what to expect from us, but you can actually see it. I've gone back and, and looked at the interview uh, since she passed away, and you can see her warming up to us <laughs> over the course as we, I guess... Well, we're you're, so... you're, you are a pretty scary duo. To well, Shannon is, but it was... Uh... Shannon is a scary duo, that's quite true. <laughs> it was nice kind of winning her over and, and seeing her open up yeah. and, and getting to engage with her, and she was she was really lovely, and, and, and she is very much missed. Yeah. Now, John, please tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hell is for Hyphenates, Filmmaker of the Month. Well, you said I could pick any filmmaker I wanted, the whole wide world. So I said Terry Gilliam, and then realised he'd been done. <laughs> so I chose Todd Haynes. Ah, <laughs> hey! Mr. Todd Haynes. See, now I've made Todd Haynes feel like he's, he's second best. Yeah, <laughs> It's just, yeah, to Terry Gilliam. No, no, I, I love Todd Haynes, and um, I, I just think he's, a, I think he's an under-celebrated filmmaker. What, what is it Mr. about Haynes. his stuff? I mean, we, we'll obviously get to a lot of this as we go on. What is it about him that you love? His thing, totality, I guess, yeah. The thing I really like about Todd Haynes is he plays games with narrative and with cinema, but not in a way that makes it totally intellectual. Like He's, he's a combination of this parts that are appealing to your intellectual 
kind of like, okay, this is a disease of the week movie, or this is, you're know, redoing Douglas Sirk in the modern era. You know, mm. part of it's that sort of game. But you're also meant to be emotionally engaged at the same time. He's actually an entertainer. You know, he's not trying to make art films that are completely esoteric. He's making what he considers to be mainstream <laughs> entertainment. Mm. But I like the fact that it's Todd Haynes' idea of mainstream entertainment. Mm. It's not Hollywood's idea of mainstream entertainment. Yeah. And that's what I really like. And when and I would say probably Far From Heaven is actually my favourite of, of his works. Okay. Um, far and away, Far From Heaven I love. So on one level, it's a pastiche of Douglas Sirk's plot lines and being more overt about things Douglas Sirk couldn't mention in the 50s. So he can mm. actually talk yeah. about homosexuality and he can talk about race issues. Mm. I mean, Cirque was pushing the boundary in a lot of... Cirque yeah, was. but Cirque had... Yeah, he couldn't just come out and say... No, exactly. Cirque was still nodding towards. Yeah, 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 assuming the audience would know. Whereas in this, he can just say it. At the same time, I find Julianne Moore's performance and what happens to her unbelievably heartbreaking. I'm mm. completely emotionally invested in that movie. So even though in some ways it's quite camp in the way that the furniture and the, the colouring, the lighting... It's never to create a distance, for me anyway. Yeah. That, that's when it succeeds. And I think people have different reactions to, to Haynes' films. Safe, which is, I think, his other, for me, other really great film, which is, a, again, a Julianne Moore performance, is about a woman who basically may or may not have a medical condition. And the film tries to go out of its way to ever overtly say whether or not she does. But mm. it's structured like a disease of the week. That was actually, he said that. He wanted it to be like a Disease of the Week telly movie. Wow. That was kind of the Directed point. by David Lynch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you take, you take that idea and then yeah. you go, the television we have at the moment that's great, things like Mad Men and the kind of HBO style thing, comes out a lot, I think, of the 90s indie movie, New York indie movement. Mm. Christine Vachon, who's the producer for, for most of Hain stuff, and I think basically Christine Vachon almost single-handedly created this kind of world we're now used to. Yeah, well, and between I, her and Ted Hope, certainly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's the thing is we've now got, and these films focus on the same way things like Mad Men do about often their characters trying to work out who they are, where they are in the world. They can be quite wordy kind of films, but they're also, um, they're, they're able to have gaps and pauses and silences yes. that you wouldn't necessarily get. In other films. And character sides and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Like to just go, you know, we just spend time with one character, like a, like a novel does. Yeah. I yeah. almost felt that, that our modern sort of cable TV is the perfect sort of middle ground between film and literature. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. you can it's take like chapters. Of yeah. A, well, he does make that yeah. deliberate choice in, in Mildred Pierce, which he did last year, where he actually said, no, every scene is going to have Mildred in it. Mm. Every scene. Uh, which I don't think is the case in the book, mm. but it's it, it is that intense focus on this one character that you're almost never going to leave. And, I'm just doing, and even the films where he does, he makes it that I don't like mm. personally, I still can appreciate something's going because because oddly enough, Mildred Pierce is one of them. Mildred Pierce to me is the only one where he's not playing any games. Yeah, and yes, well, it's the only one where he's not directing in an ob like obviously directing in a past style. Yeah, and and that's oddly enough the reason I think it leaves me slightly cold. Mm. So I go, it's a good, it's it's a well made piece, but it doesn't have the intellectual chewiness for me to really get into. Like, well, yeah, I, I feel like the reason they got him to do that is because. It's a melodrama, and there's, I don't think there's anyone who does melodrama better at the moment mm -hmm. than Haynes. Yeah. Um, but it's lacking something that the rest of his films have, which is that, that theme of an outsider, of the central character being an outsider from society. 
and it's the one like as 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 distinct as Mildred Pierce as a character is, it doesn't have what every single work he up until that point had, mm. to the extent where one of the signature shots that that Haynes has in his films is the point of view of the main character as everyone stares at them, as everyone stares at them whether they're walking in the street whether they're in at a party. Mm. There is almost always a shot where everyone is looking at you like you're the you're the outsider, mm. and and I think that's the the strongest theme of his work. Right back to, I mean, he really kicked off with Superstar, a film that can't come out yeah. because of the music rights. But in '98, the Karen Carpenter story, which he told with Barbie dolls, and again, the interesting thing was Superstar was he said '89. I should say '89. Yeah, he wanted to do this thing where um, he wanted to know if he could still make you emotionally involved while telling a story that was entirely Barbie dolls. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he was saying, you know, they, their faces don't change. They have no emotion <laughs> they can project. Yeah. And when you watch it, and weirdly enough, I saw it at the National Film Theatre in London. Yeah. Um, he gave a talk for Far From Heaven. Right. And um, after that, they just put it on. Like, it wasn't advertised. It <laughs> wow. Because they, well, like, yeah, yeah. they weren't legally... Yeah, they weren't legally allowed to say they were playing it. Because yeah. like you're saying it's the music rights that... that and the, the music rights really covers the fact, though, that um, Richard f- Carpenter is so angry at the film because it basically says he's an asshole and a closet case and all sorts of other stuff <laughs> that he didn't take too well to. Um, so they played this thing, and you do. You're, yeah, you're, you're laughing at the fact that it's all dolls for the first 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't Maybe it's just me. I genuinely got involved with the emotion of it yeah. by the end. You actually forget. And you get involved with it. And he said with that film too, he wanted to make a film that was the worst, most straightforward kind of celebrity rise and fall telly movie, again, of the sort that, that plays the most ham-fistedly obvious song at the most obvious time. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, yeah, so right. yeah, yeah. wow, we're going to be a success and then we're only just begun. We'll start yeah, playing yeah. that sort of thing. That's exactly what he wanted to do. I love his sense of humor with stuff like that. Yeah. It's so subtle. But it's also the thing he says he wants to take those rules and see if he can make it work yeah, yeah. in a way. You know, if you do this in a non-cynical manner, mm. what do you get from it? And I think that's why Superstar is so interesting. Well, that's what I find really interesting about his, his adaptation of many, many styles in his films. He seems to play them all with probably the exception of some stuff in his first film, Poison, from um, 1991. But generally, he plays them really straight. Mm. Like, there's no irony in Far From Heaven. You know, Mm. Far From Heaven is not... An ironic pastiche no, of Douglas Sirk. It is a Douglas Sirk film yeah, made in modern day. You're not day meant to be laughing, and that's what I like. You're never meant to be. You're not superior no. to these mm. films. And I'd say even even in um, in Poison, uh, there, were, there were three stories in Poison. One of them is uh, a kind of fifties B movie, and that's yep. the only one that there is maybe an ironic nod to. Yeah. One of them is a kind of television. Uh, people talking about a disaster, current affairsy kind yeah, of thing. It's like a it's like a Talking Heads documentary. Yeah. But again, very very straightforward. Yeah. And the other ones are kind of almost Derek Jarman esque kind of you know, uh, tribute to Genet, which is probably actually the best, well, the most um, successful part of that film. But again, it's just weird that thing of that n- the, the lack of superiority, the lack of any mm. smugness in his filmmaking. Even though it's a weirdly intellectual coming from like Brown, he, he studied um, semiotics or semiotics, something. Yeah, 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 like he didn't even say film. You know, he comes from that world, but he's not trying to be better. He's mm. he's genuinely trying to be involved with those stories. I'm not really that familiar with queer cinema, so I'm worried that this might be a reductive comparison, but Poison really reminded me of Gus Van Sant's Malanoche because it's such a, a, a raw, I mean, black and white film. Were they both black and white? No, 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 no. Oh. One, one third of it, so the, the B-movies in black and white, mm-hmm. the Talking Heads yeah. things on video, and the Genet sections in a very lush film. Yeah, Rawa. okay. 
But it did sort of have that, that really rough style to it yeah. uh, that reminded me of Malinoche, but also that it's kind of made during that period of homosexuality coming into the mainstream. Well, it's a period where queer film was actually interesting. Um, right. That can be really well, it was harsh. when Greg Araki um, started. Greg Araki, yeah. Kalen, yeah, yeah I mean, Christine Vachon was doing yep. all that stuff. It's the same period in which uh, Quentin Tarantino was, was whinging at, at um, Sundance. That it should just be called Sundance going, there's been film <laughs> Which he apparently said because he's a dickhead. And... But the point was, at the time, these films were really good. You know, if you went mm. to a queer film festival, you saw really interesting stuff that was using cinema. Mm. And all these people were interested in using cinema to, to actually explore it, which is also why they were playing on things like Sundance. And I think that sadly went away later on. Mm. And the interesting thing, too, is I actually think the thing that Poison... And I have to say, Poison's probably one of my least favourite of his, um, alongside I'm Not There, which is my other least favourite of his films. And they're the two that remind me most of each other. Right, I, I'm yeah. Not There, which is his Bob Dylan tribute. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's in... It's, it's a sort of segmented thing. It's in different styles. Mm. You know, there's colour, there's black and white, there's uh, different film stocks. Mm. Uh, and again, it, it follows a kind of very strange editing style that I think is as much kind of intuitive to him as it is necessarily deliberately structured. Mm. You know, it's a, and, and in both cases, I admire them, mm. but I can't really get into them. See, I feel that way with Poison, not so much with I'm Not There. Yeah. I feel like I feel like that almost charts the maturation of his career. Like, I'm Not There is the same filmmaker as Poison, but with 20 years of skills yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and maturity. The one thing about experience. I'm Not There, though, as well, I think, which compared to the others, my feeling with I'm Not There is if I knew Dylan inside out, I, I would find that film a complete nerdgasm. You know, like yeah, it would well, just I be. I felt that the first time I saw it. But my problem is because I don't know Dylan that well, mm. and I don't particularly like Dylan. Yeah, you know, it's like I kind of get why he's important, but it's not my thing. Mm. It meant that I found a lot of it again very cold. Like I think a lot of the emotion in that film is coming from your reaction to the music. Yep. Perhaps you're meant to be bringing and I think it a lot with of, you. I think there's a lot of metaphor in there as well for things that happened in Dylan's life, in musical influences of his. Yeah. that you get if you know a lot about Dylan. Yeah, yeah. That's actually my favourite of his films. Is it? I, I'm not yeah. there. I, I, mm. I think it's, it's basically a perfect film. Oh, and wow. It's, for me, it's like Russian art. Like, I don't need to know a lot about Russian history to love that film. Right. Um, and, I, and I love Dylan, but I don't know a lot about him. But it, it still drew me in because it was... It avoids the selective collection of dramatic events uh, that would shape a biopic into mm. identical stories, like Ray and Walk the Line. And it, 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 it just tells us who he is through all this, this, this metaphor and obfuscation. Um, my right. only problem with it is that um, I often get Todd Haynes and Todd Solons confused yeah, yeah. and having multiple ca- actors play the same <laughs> the lead ca- yeah. like mm. Solons did in Palindromes yeah. does yeah. not help me. No, yeah. no, no. It really doesn't help. Yeah, and, and, and both of them had Christine Bashan as their producer <laughs> oh, there you as go. well. So there is, they all come from that same world. No, the, the weird thing is I actually came out of I'm Not There liking Dylan less than I did when I went in. Right. <laughs> Going, wow, you really were a pretentious wanker. What I like to call the doors effect. Yeah, exactly. No, it was exactly that. I think when, when you start taking the lyrics and trying to go, look how meaningful they were, you go, actually, no, that's, that's kind of meaningless. Isn't it? That's, just, that's just twaddle. And, yeah, and especially the, the, um, the one that really annoys me is the, the, there's a Rimbo character. I think yeah. in, I'm Not There and he's... Mm. He's so irritating <laughs> every time he shows up to say these so, so-called meaningful lines. Yeah. You just go, oh, actually, no, you're really annoying. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and, and things I can, I can appreciate how good the performances are mm. in that film. I love the look of that film, but I did find that one a slog to get through, which I, I haven't really for any of his other 
What about Velvet Goldmine? That's kind of one we haven't touched well, on. Well, Velvet Goldmine is really interesting because I think it's a complete failure of a movie that's really interesting. You know, yeah. it's, it's, um, I think that's one I'm happy to watch. I'm happy to watch again, even though I don't think it remotely works. It's really weird to go, I don't think you work as a film, but you're completely watchable. Is that uh, yeah. what a film is at the end of the day? I don't know. It's, it's... I think the last, uh, the last half hour drowns a bit in, in Haynes' esoterica and mm. his love of identity switching. Because I can't tell what the hell Christian Bale is doing in the final third of that film. Mm -hmm. Like, did he know Kurt Wilde? Is he imagining himself as part of their inner circle? Because he's always wanted in, but always yeah. been out. But that's quite interesting too, isn't it? Because the whole thing, he, he's actually using the structure of Citizen Kane on that movie. Well, oh, well, which is I was about to ask, I, I yeah. worked that out watching the film, and yeah. I was going to ask, has anyone else said that before? Because no. I'm so well, proud of myself. At the point <laughs> when you see the billboard introducing Tony Collette, who he's interviewing in a bar, yeah. and thunder cracks as we see I the, think her he uses name. the same shot is it direct bar as well. Yeah, okay. Susan Alexander. Of course. <laughs> but I of course, I had, yeah. I had a lot of evidence that wasn't, I didn't pick <laughs> yeah, up on that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, okay. But so, so here's this film about it. But yeah. no, that's the point where he just tips his hand and he goes, sure. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> but you've had a yeah. journalist trying to get the, the truth behind, you know, behind this man's life. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. in Kane, and in, in this one, it's like everything everyone's saying could well be a lie. And it's almost like narrative itself just dissolves by the end of the movie, it just collapses. Yeah, in yeah. a heap of we have no idea I also wanted to mention that too because we, we went to Christian Bale totally like that. his casting I find really interesting and he's really good at not just finding people so Julianne Moore basically you know came out of his yeah. stuff mm. more than anywhere else um, well Safe was her first lead her, yeah exactly mm. and you also have things like uh, you know he was using Christian Bale and Ewan McGregor and all these people before they were famous like famous yeah. um, but then he also yeah, does that thing of casting people in interesting ways and I just wanted to mention Tony Collette because I know she got attacked for her accent in Velvet Goldmine and for me it's some of the best accent yeah, work I have it's ever it's completely intentional yeah. it's all intentional and there are two different accents she does yeah. one is an American who's living in London and trying to kind of posh it up a bit yeah. the second is years later when she's back in America and has absorbed some of the English sounds mm. and now can't get rid of them they're two beautifully performed accents I, did, I didn't know about the controversy that's exactly what I picked up on watching mm. yeah. I thought she was extraordinary enough. yeah it's, it's a Amazing, they're amazing performances, and that's it's, it's funny. Like, yeah, I think it's a failure of a movie, but there's so much we could just say is so great from it. That, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I got to say, like, uh, other than that last half hour that baffles me, I, it's probably my favorite of his films. I yeah. love it because it's like it's it's an homage to Citizen Kane, all about seventies glam rock. I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm in. You it's know, also I mean, watching watching you and McGregor basically play Iggy Pop. Yeah, and... it's also got that thing where uh, clearly these people like uh, like David Bowie, that's Iggy Pop, that's whatever. Yeah. And then, but then it, they do things that the real people never did. Well, that's the which thing. makes it even more bewildering. Yeah. To yeah. Go, well, well, there's also there's a weird line blurring as well, like because there's. As apparently there's as much Lou Reed in Kurt Wilde as there is Iggy Pop. Yeah, yeah. And there's other like there's as much Mark Bolan in mm. Brian Slade as there is David Bowie. Um, so there, there's there's a lot of kind of line crossing and different yeah. influences. It's not just this is Bowie, this is Pop, even though it may look like that from their characters' physical appearances. I just found it completely um, enthralling. I loved his technique, you know, the, the 70s zoom lenses and his use of kind of colour and that great soundtrack. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's not every day you get to hear placebo cover T-Rex, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just so much. And I think it's the most fun of his films yeah. as well. But, I mean, even as a filmmaker, though, I think if you didn't know him, I think if you sat down and watched his films one after the other in the order he made them, it's just a really interesting experience yeah. to see someone develop and grow. And well, I've never been 
I mean, yeah, I mean, I've never been a, a huge Haynes fan in the past, but mm-hmm. going through his filmography, watching them, as you say, in, in order one by one, I've actually got a huge respect for him now. I just, there's something about his wavelength that I find really intriguing. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I guess with Poison, I think it's ambition. I think it's, it's reach outweighs its grasp. He's clearly got a lot to say. He's clearly got a lot of ambition. He's playing with style, which is very brave on a $250,000 budget. Yeah. And I don't think it succeeds. I think it's clunky. I think it's sort of... I like, I like the B-movie story quite a bit. I didn't think the documentary story really worked very well at no. all. And the Jean Genet one... Uh, they're, oh, they're all based on Jean Genet stories. But the um, the Derek Jarman style one um, is somewhere in the middle. It works at times, and other times it just feels a bit badly acted and a bit sort of clunky. But there's clearly someone with his eye on a higher prize. There's yeah. clearly yeah. an artist at work here. And then with Safe, Safe's a tough film to get into. It's a tough film to like. But when you do, it's, it is genuine. I mean, this is said about a lot of films, but I think Safe is a genuinely complex and challenging film. Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot going on there. And it's, I'm not even sure I understand it. All of it. But there's a lot going on, I mean, and particularly because I, I, I watched it late at night and I fell asleep and I thought, no, I need to watch it again. And I watched it during the day. And having being able to watch the second half for a second time, I started keeping an eye and an ear on everything that was happening in the background. Mm-hmm. News reports, everything, every all the input that was going yeah. into Julianne Moore's character's head. And it's all stuff about the rapture, stuff about the apocalypse, stuff about... There's, there's a scene where she's watching television and it seems to be people comment, like commentators on yeah. whether someone should have their life support disconnected. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, whole, the whole film is because she, yeah, the purpose of the film, she claimed she seems to have this 20th century disease, what I think it was called back then, mm. um, which is this modern you know, thing, and no one's still convinced it is or isn't a real condition. And that's really interesting because it's a disease of the week movie in which the woman may not actually have a disease and yeah. might just think she has one. Because the first time I was watching it again, I was kind of like, oh, I don't like this person. And the second time I had a lot more sympathy because she's so sad because she's so vacuous and inarticulate. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, yeah. That that uh, the whole thing is like this big anti-capitalist, anti-establishment thing where the she's reacting against society. It's making her ill, but the solution is just as bad. You know, yeah. the, the, it's not helping her at all. It's all society-approved stuff that just continues. And then she to, gets involved with this kind of weird cult that's telling her that she's the problem, and well, it's that, not that the outside well. world, every, and it's not. You every know, you structure, need to love yourself. It's every single structure she she finds herself in just makes her worse. Mm. And speaking, and when you say in a being inarticulate, that last speech she gives oh. is chilling and mm. brilliant and kind of because everything know, she said is something recycled. It's something she's yeah. heard someone else say, and it's devoid of context. It's yeah. just rambling. But it's so and to and to kind of end on that note is just does just that, so brave and genius. Does that film have one of the most chilling final shots? You've yeah, seen yeah. where she's just sitting in that chamber, bathed in green light, staring at the mirror, telling herself she loves it. Yeah. She, I love you. I love you. It's something with that, with that sort of Angelo Badlamenti, David Lynch painted it. Amazing yeah. film. And in the on, background, on, something really chilling about that. On the DVD commentary track, uh, Haynes mentions there's one shot towards the end uh, when they're in this cult-like place, which he would remove because he thinks it's the only shot that gives you an idea of judgment. He says there's one bit which he thinks is indicating whether or not you're meant, what you're meant to think about these people. He says nothing yeah. else in the entire film is ever meant to tell you what to think about these yeah. people. And I love that. that you, <laughs> if I could change it, I'd take out that one shot, which seems to indicate wow. you should have an opinion. Yeah. You know, it's like... Haynes is primarily thought of as a melodramatist. Is that a term? If not, well, it is it now. It is now. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't really think of him as somebody who, who commonly pays tribute 
to things, like a, a, a reappropriator of, of pop culture icons. But when I look through at all the things he's paid tribute to, from you know Dylan and I'm not there, Karen Carpenter and oh, Superstar. I mean, structure-wise, he he loves pop culture, and he's he, always taking these pop culture. Yeah, but you know, and and, and uh, Dotty gets spanked. Um, That's he, a bizarre. It's a strange half-hour film what he made for HBO. Yeah, I don't think any of us had seen that, have we? Before we I, watched on YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I was just what. But that, that, <laughs> it's sort of this I Love Lucy type I Love Lucy, exactly. Yeah. I Love Lucy is a kind of weird psychosexual spanking fetish. Yeah, this kid, you, it's basically the of journey age. of a child who develops a spanking fetish through watching too much I Love Lucy. Yeah. Essentially. Also, <laughs> it's a classic tale. Um, <laughs> and actually, what was weird with that one though? Because it was, it was a half hour? Was that yeah, half, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is that I just wanted to keep going. I mean, I was loving it. Really? I just wanted more because I wanted, it, it just felt like it didn't go far enough. Yeah. You know, it was almost like I needed to know where this was going and what the point of it was. And it was so good that I wanted to... Um, it should be a period drama, which he, he's done a fair chunk of mm. and I think does it beautifully and does it on such a low budget and mm. I love the way mm. that the uh, period drama in a, in a Todd Haynes movie is just basically re- removing things actually um, Christian Bichon has said that about with budgets with, with period dramas is that it just determines how close the shots have to be yeah so yeah, basically yeah. Yeah, the how less money you have you the more close you're going to get <laughs> yeah and and I just love the way his films just, just strip stuff out. Yeah. Uh, even in I'm Not There, there's a sequence which is meant to be, I think, in London, but it's actually filmed in Paris. And oh, right. In the style of um, Fellini, of course. Mm-hmm. And this is these beautiful black and white tracking shots in this you know, beautiful um, old house and people just running around the Beatles appearing in that, that particular. But just that thing of he just simplifies it out yeah. to yeah. take away the modern and leaves you going, that's it, that's what the past looks like. And you believe it, and Dottie gets spanked. Mm. Did an exceptional job on that with you know virtually no budget. Yeah, made for PBS and yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, Far from Heaven's an interesting case. I I enjoyed it, but I think by the time it got to that point, everything everything else is done was so esoteric to it, or it had a, a note of the esoteric to it that by comparison. Far From Heaven seemed really prosaic. <laughs> Is that weird? It's so a, making a straightforward Douglas Sirk movie yes. in, in, you know, in the 21st century just seemed normal. But yeah, <laughs> like, where are the tricks? Yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely right. It is, yeah. a, it is like, a magnificent don't they, make, don't they make Douglas Sirk pastiches every single day of the week? <laughs> it's so know? common. I remember sitting there in the cinema looking around going, is this making sense to anyone else? Like, how many of you have seen Douglas Sirk films? Like, mm. How are you well, guys watching this? I, I actually hadn't seen Douglas Sirk until after. That's yep. the thing too. Like I was quite happy to be led to this to then go and watch a whole stack of them afterwards, yep. and you know enjoy them more. I think than I would have because I'd come in from from this way, right? Uh, but yeah, you know, but I still kind of got what it was, and it was funny how that thing of what could be alienating. It was like no, I mean, I also I loved Julianne Moore anyway. I loved her in this in this role. I felt for her so completely from the beginning of the movie. Mm. And how I, good's Dennis Quaid? Uh, yeah, yeah. Quaid and Dennis well, Haysbert actually I think both do amazing yeah. jobs in this. It's yeah, a, yeah, it's, it's an amazing film with the like in terms of oppression. How you've got three central characters and one is oppressed for being a woman, one for being black, and one for being gay. Mm. And I love the way he really plays with these uh, these three people just constantly butting against each other. Well, it's other. also that thing about it's it's also the confines of what they have to live with, isn't mm. it? It's like there's that sense of. We are in these roles. It's the same way Mad Men does it now. So, you know, in this time, this is all we're allowed to be. Yep. And all the characters are finding themselves frustrated by that and wanting to be more. And there is a truly horrifying moment, and this is, this is a bit of a spoiler, I probably think, where Patricia Clarkson, who's the best friend mm. of the Julian Moore character, who you assume has been supportive, suddenly turns around and just, just 
basically says she's disgusted by her and her behaviour. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. because Patricia well, Clarkson is living the role she's meant to be in and she's doing it correctly and is kind of horrified. And it's like this one thing is like, that's a bridge too far. Yeah. It's yeah, like everything yeah. that's happened to you, I can completely support and completely be the friend for you. Yeah. But but that, no, I'm sorry. That's just, and it's clearly an ingrained behaviour. Yeah. It's just like, that's a snapping point. And it's odd how we think that what we respond to in cinema is subtlety, but what we actually tend to respond to more often than not is people being overt, filmmakers being overt. Like, and, and yes, this is a melodrama throwback, but just the line how she says, I've, I don't think I've ever wanted for anything, and immediately Dennis Haysbert appears, his mm-hmm. character appears <laughs> that moment. Like, and it's just so on the nose. And you don't quite notice it. It's, like, it, it's surprisingly um, subliminal Deft. for yeah, something yeah, so yeah, overt. Yeah. Yeah. Even things like her costumes, which, um, and again, I, I worked at the National Film Theatre for a bit in London. We had some of them on display at one point. And in real life, uh, the, 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 the actual wardrobe she wears for that film is hysterical. It's hilarious. If you see any of them just on a thing in a glass box, you yeah. go, that is the most, like the Christmas one has like you know, trees and Christmas trees. And <laughs> they just, they are hilariously over the top. You see them in the context of the movie and they're right. That's what she would wear. Yeah. You know, and I just you love that so much. Yeah. It all fits together so well. And if any part of that had been out of kilter, that film could well have been unwatchable, yeah, you know, but absolutely. it all matches. Or that ironic, hey, look, we're doing a melodrama. Yeah, oh, yeah, it should be thing, horrible if it was like, oh, let's all laugh at the form. Yeah. He's never laughing hey, at the form. Hey, laugh at the 50s, you know, yeah. look how lame everyone was. It's no, like, he's no, going, it's, it's a tragedy. These people yeah. were stuck with these roles. Mm. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't exactly pump them out either. He tends well, to have three to five years in between I don't know what he does in between films. these. I mean, I think partly it's hard to get funding. Christine Vachon's written a couple of books about producing I mentioned in the second one that it's harder to get funding now than it was you know she's got Academy Awards and stuff now it's harder to get funding yeah. than it was when she was in the early 90s just piecing mm. them together so I don't know what he does in between time I did discover he, he made a, an ad for Heineken yeah. which I, I didn't know and I looked it up on, on YouTube and I found it quite charming went, oh that's weird I've been charmed by a beer ad <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I don't. I have no idea what he does in the four, five year gaps between movies. It's quite astonishing, but I kind of like directors like that. I don't yeah. mind when they take their time and, and, and Espe- especially when they things. come out with stuff that's as good as his films. Yeah, are. Mm. or so, as well thought out. Such an original, distinctive kind of style. Even though yeah. he is going back and mining the past, his yeah. films are wholly original. They're completely yeah. him. Absolutely. Yeah, but he's definitely an. A, a wholly original voice. Mm. Um, I have no idea what he's coming up with next. Yeah, I haven't. I, I hadn't been able to find any information on that. No, um, he's doing whatever John is pondering. Whatever he does he, during he, the he, he, he lives in Portland, Oregon, and I know he has a fire pit. A fire. So pit. he's probably hanging out by the fire pit in Portland, Oregon. Well, I, I he... look forward to seeing that in four years. <laughs> <laughs> Gus Van Sant lives in Portland, Oregon. Like, is, like, I was is right. that where the new queer cinema is, yeah, is based yeah, yeah. now? They Portland, all live in Portland. And the comparison was spot on. There you can go. get a big house with a fire pit. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Until next month, keep watching stuff. <laughs> <laughs>